Mercado Libre was founded in Argentina in 1999 and still is, to this day, one of the most successful entrepreneurship stories in Latin America and the world. Our guest in this episode, Nico Sakazi, joined co-founders Marcos Galpanin and Hernan Caza at the very beginning as CFO. The company faced a number of challenges during the 2001 dot-com bubble and the Great Recession in 2008. Nico took the company public in 2007, putting them in a great position to weather the storm that would soon follow. A few years later, Nico and Hernan left Mercado Libre and started Kazek Ventures, a venture capital firm that helps outstanding entrepreneurs build high-impact technology-based businesses in Latin America. When Kazek invested in Viveral, Nico joined our board. I remember feeling intimidated at our first board meeting as I didn't have a finance leader at the time. There I was presenting a financial forecast to the guy who took Mercado Libre public on the NASDAQ. I stayed up all night working on it, but I knew the model wasn't any good and I was worried about looking like an idiot. However, Nico has always been supportive, transparent, and he's always had really smart advice. Today, he shares his thoughts with us, a bit of his journey, and his views on raising capital, especially in times like these. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. So for the uninitiated, Nico, um, what does Lake Como mean? <laughs> <laughs> we talked about that a long, long time ago. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we were going to the eBay meetings uh, because eBay had become an investor in Mercado Libre. And part of the agreement was that we could go to some of their uh, internal uh, ops reviews and strategic reviews and participate as if we were a subsidiary of eBay. So Marcos, Hernan, and I used to go uh, to San Jose very often. It was good to see uh, the frugality of the culture at eBay. It was a very successful company. It was a profitable company. But you could still see that it was very austere and that it had a culture where they were building something relevant and growing their business and their revenues, but still very conscious about their costs. They were so successful that one day uh, they decided that they had to reward themselves and the next ops review would be happening for the first time, not in their offices in San Jose, California, but in Lago di Como, in the north of Italy, close to, to Milan. So we were invited, we went to that event, it was great, we really enjoyed it. But it was at a time when probably eBay had peaked and Amazon was uh, coming from behind, but really challenging them. And eBay was starting to feel pressure on their revenues and on their business in their core markets in the US and, and Germany. So it was just uh, uh, maybe a, a coincidence, but we used to think about the Lago di Como, the Lake Como moment when maybe a, a company is not so frugal anymore. And maybe there's a belief that we have already made it and therefore we can reward our, ourselves. I think it, was, it had nothing to do with uh, a changing culture at and eBay was really a, a coincidence, but we use that anecdote as uh, something internally. At, at Meli, the Lago di Como moment, you never want to get to a point where you think that you have already made it or that you have to be uh, celebrating your success because 
every day you go back to the trenches and to the battlefield. So, so I don't know if uh, this is uh, cl clear enough, but it was like a symbol to a certain yeah. degree that this never ends and you always have to be paranoid and you always have to continue fighting because there's always new challenges, new competitors. Uh, you were the disruptor, but maybe if you become complacent, somebody will come after you and will eat your lunch and will disrupt you. So the, the message that we use this metaphor internally at Melly for was never be complacent. You always have to be alert. You always have to be looking forward. You always have to be constructing, building, developing, doing, executing, and so on and so forth. Yeah. The, the, what I like about it is there's a very symbolic idea. It's easy to see this beautiful place and it, it, it does a good job of illustrating. Yeah, yeah it, it became like the Lago di Como uh, became like an inflection point. And again, I think it was a, a coincidence and it was not that the, I don't think that even had become complacent. It became a coincidence, but we used this, the symbolic value or the metaphorical value of, of that uh, because in any space, but particularly in technology, things move so, so, so fast that there will always be three kids in, in a garage that are looking at you as, as, as the target in the same way that you were looking at others as, as the, the incumbents or the complacent, more, more old-fashioned type of, of players. So you need to ensure that you instill in a company this, this culture of constant, constantly be uh, reinventing your, 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 your model and, and your strategies and your tactics. Yeah. So you mentioned eBay a little bit, and I know that eBay was a partner of you guys. Melly sold, I think, 19.5% to eBay in 2001. Is that right? Yeah. And, and you entered into some kind of agreement, like a non-compete. Tell us the circumstances when, when you took that money and what were the repercussions of having a corporate on your cap table? Yeah. So now we are investors. Uh, that was part of the prior cycle of our professional lives. Sure. As, as investors, we would always recommend uh, to companies that they raise money for as long as, as they can from VCs. If there are many reasons, but maybe if you want to just to focus on one, is neutrality of the capital. It doesn't have any sort of strings attached to, to the capital that a VC will provide. They will align incentives and they will try to help you to, to get to, to success at the end of the line. There's no other agenda than, than that. When you raise money from a strategic, they are, Deploying the capital because they want to get something else from, from your business other than a return. They want to buy you at some point or, or partner with you or a number of things that will limit your optionality going forward. So the recommendation is always don't, don't partner with a strategic investor early on. It doesn't make any sense. In our case, we did something different to what... I am recommending right now. It was a very, very different time relative to, to today, COVID aside. Uh, there was scarcity of capital. We had started Mercado Libre in 1999, raised our last round in 
early 2000. Uh, April 2000, the inter famous interbubble collapsed. And from there onwards, for years, there was not any availability of capital whatsoever not only in Latin America, but even in the US, if you wanted to raise around in 2002, 2003, there was no, no capital. 2001, for sure, there was no way that, that you could get, get any cash inflow into, into your business. At the time, in parallel, eBay was by far the most successful internet company in, in the world. They were the only business model that was profitable at at the time, everybody was looking up to eBay as the, the, the gold standard of how to, to build a sustainable business model leveraging internet. And eBay wanted to come to Latin America. That's a, it's a long, long story. So maybe that's for, for another question on another day. But basically, they decided that uh, the best way for them to do that was to partner with a player in Latin America. And for us, as the entrepreneurs in the company and for our investors, it seemed to be a wonderful idea in, in that uh, nuclear winter type of context to get closer to the most successful internet company in the world. It was a no-brainer whatsoever that that was the right thing to do because there were no other options or alternatives at all whatsoever in the present or in the foreseeable future. So we structured a, a partnership. They acquired 19.5% of, of the company. And that's connected to your prior question. Part of the agreement was that we would be treated as uh, a part of the family and that we would be allowed to uh, participate in their best practice sharing processes. Of course, it was both ways, right? Because they we, we, we went there and learned a lot, but they also could, could learn from, from us and some of the things that we were doing that were pretty relevant for them. Maybe not for the US or Germany at the time, but for some of their smaller markets, we were doing things that, that were quite innovative and that they could, could use. So it was something that if we had to do it all over again with the information that we had at the time, we would definitely do, do the same. At the time, it made uh, total sense. When you think about corporates investing, I mean, there's a lot of that kind of knowledge share promising, and there's probably a lot of large companies that are want to be in the startup space. Maybe they're feeling threatened by these internet models that you know are, are set to replace them at, at some point, and maybe they see this as an accelerant for that. So let's kind of go go fast forward a little bit to the kind of present day, given that right now cash is a little bit harder to come by. Those you know those current founders that are struggling right now. They're thinking about cash. They're thinking about their, their kind of current situation. I know that you sent out a message to a lot of the portfolio companies, a advice for founders. The key takeaway from that document was just that your cash is cash is king, right? You need to have, you know, runway, 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 runway is kind of the headline for that. So does that mean that you take money anywhere you can get it if you're a founder? So probably the, the, the world can divide it into three. You have VCs like, like Kasek. You have a corporate uh, VCs, which are a VC arm uh, that is part of a larger corporation. And then you have strategics per se that might want to invest in a company. In our case, though, I don't think at the time there were even 
corporate VCs. Uh, and in the case of eBay, clearly it was eBay itself. It was the corporation that invested in, in Mercado Libre. So corporate VCs, there are a bunch, and some do a really good job, and, and some, they pretend to be VCs, but they are an arm of the corporation. The definition of what is a good corporate VC is the terms that they present to a team or to a company are exactly the same terms that a VC would uh, present with no bells and whistles and no uh, pretension of, of any kind of getting some leverage or, or, or some benefit for, for the corporation. So the ones that do that sometimes do a pretty good job and, and we, we have uh, some of uh, those funds in, in sitting around the table in some of the companies that we, where we invest and it's a pleasure to, to work with them and the founders would see them in the same way that they would see another uh, VC. Uh, the corporations, it's very, very different because for sure they, in most cases, they insert into the agreements obligations for the company of uh, if you're going to do this, we, you have to give us a first refusal to offer our service first uh, and rather than you going to the market and, and, and hire this service that you might need on an arm's length basis from any supplier. So they try to force a few things that are not necessarily optimizing for, for the company and that is far from, from ideal. So if you can stay away from those types of investors when, when you're building your company, you're going to be better off and you're going to have more degrees of freedom and more optionality going forward. So that is more of a conceptual answer. Then specifically, if you go to April 2020, COVID, and a, a tough world uh, out there, it's going to depend very much on, on wh where you stand, how much you are being affected, by, by the current scenario. We sent out our Decalogue, which was a list of, of 10 recommendations of what to do in, in this context. But of course, there are some business models that are very strongly affected by, by what is going on. And in the short term, your revenues will go down to zero. So it's gonna hurt very, very much. That's on one extreme. Then most of the companies are affected to a certain degree. And just to throw a number, let's say your revenues are down by 50%. And we don't know if it is, this is going to be like this for two months, for six months, for 12 months. We know for sure that this is not going to be happening forever. And we are going to get back to, to, to normal. And this will be over. But it's going to take a while. And nobody can predict how long this will take. So most companies would be somewhere in the middle where this is, is hurting. And then you have a few lucky uh, businesses that are even getting tailwind because of what is going on in some spaces. If you are, I don't know, in some spaces in e-commerce uh, or digital education or, or some others, you might, and there's several others as well that you might be even getting tailwinds and this is good for for your uh, business so what what is your approach to to accessing capital depends very much on how lucky or unlucky you you were because this has nothing to do with strategy with capacity 
the, the strength of a team, ability to foresee the future. This is random and, and this is luck. If what happened right now affects you or, or doesn't uh, affect you. So that would be one of the dimensions. And the other dimension is where does this catch you in terms of strength of your balance sheet? Also, maybe it's to a lesser degree luck because you might have done something one way or or the other, but also has a, 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 um, a part that is uh, random. When did you raise capital last? Yeah. There are some companies that were going to go to, to the market now. So those are very unlucky because this caught them in a very weak uh, way. Some others raised uh, last year, so they are, in, they are in a stronger position. So this is like a matrix where strength of model and strength of balance sheet, depending on where you are, your needs. If you are in the weaker quadrant, you need money. You're going to take money from whoever offers money, and that's what the right thing to do for your business. If you are in the very strong quadrant, then you are in no need or no urgency. And of course, you're not going to take money in, in bad conditions or from the wrong type of investor. So the answer to your question is it depends it depends very much where this is catching you and of course uh, getting money from a strategic that is a company that you respect and you're getting an amount of capital that that makes sense there's going to be some cost to that but the cost of not getting the money might be going bankrupt so of course that is a much yeah, much better option survival is kind of the key thing highlighted in that document you know runway and making sure you survive can you take me through the process of, of you guys coming up with that document? Did you, did you, was this based on your 2000, 2008 experience? Were you pulling directly from that moment? And was that kind of condensing your previous exposure to, the, to those other incidences, previous recessions? Yeah, yeah, yeah very clearly. Uh, we were founders, leaders of an early stage company in 2000 when it was really really rough we had a slide in our presentations where we had something like a hundred names of companies that were competitors to mercado libre they were doing the same in some cases uh, more verticalized or or in, in, in one geography or multiple geographies but there were like a hundred competitors and a year later i think there were three left so it was really uh, extreme and we definitely learned from that and in those days uh, we had the foresight of understanding that cash was going to be scarce and that we had to preserve cash therefore be very strategic about how we allocated our capital we want we had a purpose we had a mission of what we wanted to do and that was the priority to make sure that we had enough runway to fulfill our mission. This was going to be a marathon, was not going to be a, a short sprint. So we said the key for this business model for, for Mercado Libre is to invest in technology and, and product and build organic growth rather than continue to, to fight with others uh, with marketing or by throwing uh, more, more headcount to problems so we reorganized the, the company to 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 focus on achieving our mission uh, with a different type of infrastructure and an organization to 
to get that done. So that was a very, very concrete example. And of course, at that time, you never know if it's going to work or not, because others might think that this is temporary and you need to continue investing aggressively to gain share. And in six months, things will go back to normal. And we thought that we would rather come from behind and, and try to recover room if we were wrong with our view. But if we erred on continuing to do business as usual, we would go bankrupt and there would be no capital available. So it was a very easy trade-off and a very easy risk-reward decision. And then in 2008, we were already a public company. And uh, when the crisis hit, I'm trying to remember the specific numbers, but we went public at $18 per, per share and in 2007. And then very rapidly, we went up to $40, $50 a share. And then when Lehman went bankrupt a year later, and the financial crisis was very evident, we went down to $8 a share, so less than half the price at which we had gone public. By the way, that was something like $300 million valuation. So we were very concerned that somebody might do a, ten, uh, a, a, a tender offer in the public market to, to buy us one, one of the, the global players. Uh, we thought it was such a, a cheap price and somebody could, could take the opportunity to, to buy us. Uh, the good news is that when these types of crises uh, hit, most people are conservative and they are on the defensive and they're trying to save their own businesses and they're not looking at, at these types of, of opportunities. But we try to do everything other than that concern that we had. We try to do everything that we could to, again, uh, preserve, uh, preserve cash. By then, we were a very profitable business, so it was much easier. And we were seeing this more as, as an external threat because the business itself was sustainable. We were making money. We were generating cash. We were growing. We had no debt. So we felt very comfortable about the business. By the way, we went back to the market and we started buying back our shares, which we thought were very cheap uh, at, at the time. Um, but we saw around us a lot of pain and we saw a lot of companies that were going bankrupt because, again, they had an imbalance between um, the maturity of of their businesses uh, and their incapacity to be generating cash flows. And there was not going to be availability of capital. And I think the lesson from 2000 and from 2008 is the sooner that you can have a business that is self-sustainable and that can generate enough resources to pay for its own expenses and you have no dependency on capital being thrown at you from external from from the external world from investors the better you you are and i think that has not only guided the way that we're seeing this this crisis and the importance of of companies to have as much control as, as they can of of their destiny but has also guided to to a large degree our investment strategies when you look at the last year and you kind of fast forward to now a year ago from today, this was there was so much euphoria, right, in Latin America. It was probably, I don't know about you, but since I've been in Latin America over the last decade, 15 years, it was probably the most euphoria we've seen. 
SoftBank arrives, made these big announcements. There's massive funding rounds. Having seen many cycles, do you feel like that's a, just a, a typical trend where like there's all this excitement and then it's kind of like the, the Warren Buffett, like when everyone is greedy, you should be scared. When everyone's scared, you should be greedy. Do you think that's just like a, a typical trend or cycle that happens? Because I remember a year ago and you do too. It was, I mean, I was looking at seed deals to invest in seed deals and people were asking for, you know, 10, 15 million dollar valuations with pre-revenue and pre-product market fit. And so tell me about your thoughts on that. And then, and then what yeah. is the moving forward? What does that mean for, for startups? There's always some sort of pendulum and, and reality has to be somewhere in the middle. And I think we, we should all try to stay as much in the center as, as we possibly can and isolate whenever there's extreme pessimism or whenever there's extreme optimism, isolate ourselves from that and, and try to really look through the noise and, and focus on the substance and on the fundamentals. Our business, I can talk about more in general, but if I want to focus on what we do, we invest in very early companies, uh, seed stage, pre-product pre, uh, market fit, pre-revenues or Series A, when there's already some indication of, of volume and some indication of product market fit. Sometimes we, we invest in a Series B, but in any case, they're always very early, early on. So we're investing for the next uh, decade Whatever happens right here, right, right now, with the macro, with the political scenario, is really not very relevant. We, we need, always need to take a step back and understand that we are investing in massive shifts uh, from the offline world to, to the digital world. We're investing in technology. These are trends that are secular, that there's very clear tailwinds. By the way, we think that once we emerge from, from this really rough year that is affecting all of us in so many dimensions, these trends will not only be there, but they will have accelerated. So it's even clearer that this is a, a good business to, to, to be in. And there are going to be a lot of great companies that will be uh, built during the next, the, the next decade. So for sure, there are some times when there is a little bit of euphoria or, or over, I don't know, things get overextended or there, there is some hype. And depending on where you're sitting uh, during that uh, wave, if you're an entrepreneur, you should try to raise as much capital as you can at the highest possible valuations for the lowest dilution available. And that is the, the logical thing to do and strengthen your balance sheet and get the resources to, to build your business. However, you need to isolate yourself from the craziness and you need to make sure that your strategy remains the same, that you use your capital and your resources intelligently, that you have your priorities, that you don't stretch yourselves too, too thin. But if you can raise capital under those scenarios, you definitely need to, to go for it. If you're an investor or a VC, you need to isolate yourself and really look for, for fundamental value, for substance. When you invest early, that is mostly ensure that you find the teams that you uh, feel very comfortable with, that you admire, that you respect, 
that you think they have the same uh, they are on your uh, wavelength of, of what needs to be done which is building fundamental value for the long term invest in the product the technology the experience not necessarily deploy all the capital in in, in marketing or things that in the absence of that, maybe there's not a really strong uh, business. Make sure that the, fo- the team is focused on, on, on building something relevant in a very large market. And they have strong ideas of how to build their product and how to build a, a solid business model that sooner rather than later will be profitable and that can, can develop uh, positive margins and positive unit economics. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, at the end of the day, there are cycles, but in the tech world, we together, everybody in the ecosystem, founders, investors, we're really trying to build things for the long term. So two years from now, we will look back and we will see some of the mistakes that we have all done and we will learn from the next time. And we will also be happy that we have identified opportunities and we're generating value. You mentioned the team in the market. Richard Barton, who was the founder of Expedia, Zillow, Glassdoor, I once heard him talk about from the investor standpoint, when you're looking at an investment, the analogy he uses is fishing. The size of the lake and the density of the fish is the market. The person fishing is the team. And then whoever's fishing next to you is the, the competition. Isolating those two, team and market, in an early stage company, if you had to just say which one is more important, is the market or the team more important? If you had to choose one. <laughs> Without uh, any doubt, the team. And that is our view. It's interesting because when you talk to VCs, some are very focused on the teams like like Kasek. We're very, very team driven. We think that if the right team will figure it out, no, no, no matter what. Then there's some other funds that are more, more focused on, on the market and others that are more focused on the business model. And they say, if you have the right business model, if you listen to the team, you can maybe uh, add complementary talent or replace someone. But to us, uh, it is all absolutely all about the team. We spend a significant amount of time before any investment with the teams, getting to, to know them, uh, checking references, making sure that we, we know as much as, as we can to confirm our total alignment and, 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 and validation. And, and then we, the, 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 the right teams, they, they will for sure uh, go all the way and, and figure things out. And the view was always, we need to identify the best teams as defined as before, that have a, a vision, that are passionate, it's very critical for teams that not only they are very strategic and they are very articulate and they are strong leaders, but it's also critical that they can execute. Sometimes you see some teams that are great about the storytelling, but then they cannot get things done. Or sometimes you think, see some teams that can get things done really well, but they have a harder time articulating their story and therefore it's difficult to raise capital or to attract a talent, both uh, sides of uh, skills are absolutely critical in a founding team. It doesn't have to be one person. Sometimes it's two or three and they each one brings something different to, uh, to, the, to the table. But what I was saying is 
team since the beginning was very critical. And probably now, the only difference is that that has been hyper-validated. Now, probably we are even more convinced about how, how critical uh, that, that is. And the other thing that we always thought was we would like not only to have the view or share a vision and identify somebody that is going to build something great, but also we would like to see if we can really help. And many investors would say, would say this, that they want to help, but then you need to structure that in a way that is, is for real. And uh, we have total clarity that the team, the founding team is in the driver's seat and that they make the final decisions. And we are here to support and to help and to be a sparring or to be someone that can challenge or provide alternative views and ideas, hopefully influence the teams, hopefully convince the teams if we have a strong view on something. But at the end of the day, if the team doesn't agree with us and wants to do something else, we will align ourselves because the, 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 the team leads the, the companies and we are in a supporting role. Yeah, I I, uh, I can attest to that. I remember a lot of conversations, some of them strategic conversations. And, you know, there's a handful of examples where I probably should have listened to you guys and other times where I think I made the right decision and you guys maybe pushed back, but not to the point where, you know, I felt like it just pressure tests my idea to, to a really... So I think that's a, a good role of, of VC, particularly one with operational background, to be able to pressure test ideas. But um, you know, going back to more of the market uh, question, because that's obviously an important element. There's one thing that you mentioned that I'm recalling right now from a dinner we had where you talked about the thesis for Kazakh. So you know, mentioned something to the effect that you look for businesses that have something unique to Latin America or something inherently local. Can you describe that in more detail? And does any yeah. of that change in the current in the current environment? Yeah. That has not changed. That was part of the thesis since the beginning. And the idea is basically that we can only invest in businesses that we really understand, that we can uh, see ways to, to helping, uh, and also that we can be convinced that they can become leaders in the markets where they, they operate. And for that, we need to have visibility into how they are going to accomplish that. So what, what we mean by lo local friction points that are being resolved by, by all of our companies, they, they are companies that you can only build if the team uh, operates out of Latin America and builds the business within Latin America, of course, if you're very successful and once you become a leader in Brazil and, and you want to expand into Europe or the US or anywhere else, we would be delighted to see that and we would be proud to, to be a part of a, of a company that becomes a global leader. But initially, you need to uh, prove that you can uh, win in, in, your, in your market so that uh, in, to a certain degree, defines what are the types of, of business models into which we, we invest. We invest in a lot of marketplaces and, and platforms like, like Grupo Sap Viva Real, where uh, you need to have uh, access and direct contact with your 
clients, the brokers and, and the agents, if you're sitting in Silicon Valley or in New York, and that's where the company is based, it's really hard to, to get that uh, built, build that platform. You need to find ways to, uh, to get demand. In, in, in the case of Grupo Sabiba Real, you have structured an, an event that has become very massive and has become a pillar of your marketing and branding efforts. So there are a number of things that are very, very local in nature in any marketplace or platform. Mercado Libre is the best example. Uh, by, by being local, I mean that you need to interact with the sellers, which are mostly individuals and SMBs. You have a lot of strategies and tactics to engage with them and to attract them and, and to bring them on, on, on board. You have to, on the payment side, integrate with a number of financial payers that are very local in, in nature. We have also invested in a, a number of fintech companies that are very local in, in every dimension. There's a lot of processing and integrations that are uh, exclusively with uh, local uh, partners. There's a lot of regulatory stuff that you need to understand that you need to, to comply with. So, so those are, are I, I, I think, good, good examples of businesses. On the contrary, if you're trying to build a social network or a search engine that is pure technology, you can do that sitting from anywhere. And we got a lot of pitches for, for companies that wanted to raise money for a social network in Brazil. And we never saw how you can build a defensible business against players that are building the same somewhere else. And also, it's really hard for us to diligence if you're going to be the best team relative to teams in California or, or Eastern Europe or Asia or, or, or wherever. So clearly, that has, that has become a, a very relevant uh, factor. And when, when you look at, at the portfolio, you will see in every single company, when we invest in software as a service, if somebody wants to build like a productivity tool, it's going to be really hard for us to see, is this better yeah. than the one that is being done in, in somewhere else? But if you're doing uh, payroll processing or you're doing tax accounting or, or those types of things, those tend to be very local in nature. That's awesome. Nico, well, well thank you for uh, taking the time. And I want to thank you for the support over the years. It's We're almost going on a decade between you know us working together. So it's been an incredible journey and a valued partnership. And I look forward to the next decade uh, moving forward. For sure. Pleasure. Like always talking to you, uh, you know that we have really enjoyed partnering with you over all these years. And uh, this uh, initiative now that you're undertaking to try to, to pay it forward in many different uh, ways is extraordinary. We didn't mention, but we're both close to also to, to the Endeavor community. I think uh, this is a very good reflection of, of that spirit of paying it forward. And guys like you are at the, at the lead uh, doing this. So. Thank you for, for doing this. No worries. Yeah, that's something we, we care about and we're passionate about. Just to be clear, there'll be a business in here too. <laughs> there, there usually is. Um, but anyways, uh, thank you, man. Bye -bye. Awesome. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Nico Sakazi, former CFO of Mercado Libre and co-founder of Kazakh Ventures. Each week, we'll be talking to some of the top founders and investors in Brazil and Latin America. 
So don't forget to subscribe and check out Latitude.com for more content on building, scaling, and raising venture capital. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth, and until next time. Thank you.